Welcome to Lit Bits number six. My name's Adam Smythe and I'm joined as ever by um, the man known to the public as James Kidd. And um, thanks very much um, for listening and joining us here. Except, of course, you're not here with us. Um, You may be jogging along by the side of the Thames listening to us or in the gym or running expansively across fields of corn, or maybe you're in a building listening to this. And I think that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to think about architecture and buildings and maybe walls and possibly bricks and literature and what they've got to do with each other and how we might connect the two. And I'm delighted to be joined um, by Steve Rose, a writer and film and architecture critic. Yes, you can say that. Great. Well, thanks for being here. And why don't we kick off by thinking about reading um, compared to being in a building and moving through a building and whether reading a book is like moving through a building. And I wonder how we um, begin to think about that. And the reason I ask, I suppose, is that in the Renaissance period, which I know a little bit about, um, or I should know a little bit about, quite a lot of books offer themselves as buildings and churches in particular. There's a poetry collection by George Herbert called The Temple, which has the rather unfortunate subtitle of Private Ejaculations. Um, but anyway, it's called The Temple. And, As opposed to public ejaculation. <laughs> yeah, that was the sequel that never appeared. Um, and the whole book is structured. You sort of go in the, the church porch and you move towards the altar and it's very, very linear in that way. And you move through a building, but it's very, very directed. Well, I guess uh, religious architecture especially has a processional yeah. sort of value to it. And there is a kind of, you know, and it, because it has a, you know, a ceremony attached to it, there's yeah. an order. And I guess with a book, there is no, there's only one way to proceed through it. Yeah. You start at the beginning and you get to the end. You can't think, oh, I think I'll just dip in at chapter three or, oh, I wonder what's in the, over there. Kind That's of right. And although there's lots only of, one way. Lots of, lots of kind of avant-garde novelists try to construct different orders like, I don't know, B.S. Johnson playing around with sections so you can put them in. That's all dependent on the, the norm being that kind of linear order. Absolutely. It? But then the same could be true of architecture in a lot of ways. I, you walk into the front door of a house, yeah. you don't expect to find the master of bedroom. You know, yeah. you've got to kind of, uh, you know, you've got to order your spaces. Yeah. There has to be an order. Yeah. And if there isn't an order or if it's a strange order, then the building is unfamiliar and yeah. difficult to use. So there's always, and there is always a processional sort of, you know, sequence to a yeah. building and the architects especially spent a lot of time thinking about entrances mm-hmm. and how you're going to experience a building when you walk into it first of all first of all where the door is because especially with a lot of modern architecture the kind of um uh, when you have a pure geometric form you need to signify where is the door <laughs> where where's the way in it was banging into yeah. walls with the book you open it on page one but with you know, with an architecture, with architecture, you have to think even from the beginning. Like, how do you get in? Where do you start? Mm-hmm. And once you're in the building, um, I think a lot of architects, like Frank Lloyd Wright, for example, um, used a, a device which is adopted a lot, which was to make an entrance very small, so that when you walked in, you kind of felt squeezed into the building. Mm-hmm. But then when you got inside you were sort of presented with a vast space or a kind of something breathtaking or something surprising. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, even Wren's churches or something, you know, you walk in, you can't see the, the space is gradually revealed to you in the same way you could make in a literary analogy, so, you know, drawing you into a, a yeah. story. And the building sort of has to hold hold stuff back, can't give it you all at once. In architecture, you have to sort of make the building leg- legible from the outside, mm-hmm. uh, which means basically you're, the author is having to design the cover of the book mm-hmm. um, and that the building... I mean, you can lie about what's inside the building on the outside, but people don't generally like that. People generally like a building to 
say what it's doing on the inside from the outside. Are there sort of genre buildings in the same way that you would have horror horror no- novels or humorous novels? Are there, are there comic buildings that would present themselves in a way and then there was a terrifying. moment when everyone was uh, then, uh, 10 years ago was everyone was obsessed with pods weren't they I mean architecture she was sort of it spent a little time sort of hanging out the fringes of the architecture association bar sort of observing life there and people seem to be talking about pods and, and podules and cells and, and I don't know if these ever got built built but that, that seemed to be a, a way of thinking of a building about a building a genre of a building that was popular there well, but when when architects are designing a building, do they want to control how we move through it? It depends on what the type, what type of building it is. Mm. Um, but there's, they want it to be legible normally. I mean, no one, you know, the opposite of a kind of legible building would be sort of a maze. You want to know where you are, and you need to feel like secure in the building, yeah. unless it's a fun fair or something. Um, so legibility. You can't really play tricks with, I suppose, in the same way that you can in literature. You can, you know, you can give people red herrings in literature. You can fool the viewer, you can tease them, mm-hmm. or you can play around with structure in a way that people think, oh, that's clever, and switch mm-hmm. between the past and present. Mm-hmm. But in a building, you can't really play tricks, I suppose. I mean, you can play, you know, you can make little asides, or yeah. you can make little flourishes and gestures, but the building has to function yeah. in a way. So there's not that freedom, I suppose, creatively. Or it's kind of a more constrained freedom that you have to kind of work around. Yeah, that's interesting. And is, th- is that because architecture is, is on, on a basic level, um, a functional, pragmatic kind of useful yes, thing yeah. that has to keep you warm, keep you sheltered and give you a place to live? And it may be other things on top of that, but it has to do that first. Are there buildings that couldn't be built in some way, like some of the imaginary buildings you perhaps get described in literature, perhaps when you're studying, and then you're told, well, that's rid- very beautiful, but ridiculous because it... It would fall over. Well, lots of architects make their name by making designing impossible buildings. Paper architecture, Is which has been paper? yeah, which has been a significant uh, sort of field and has led the process. You know, Mies van der Rohe before he got to build anything significant was designing designed a glass skyscraper in about the twenty late twenties, I think it was. That was a a competition entry that's regarded as one of the most influential buildings in architecture because it sort of foresaw the age of glass architecture there was no you know it was impossible at the time but that doesn't mean it's going to be impossible later Mm -hmm. um so in that way you can let your imagination sort of take some sort of flight or zaha hadid did a you know a series of seminal drawings and uh because no one would build anything she was thinking of (laughs) (laughs) um you know and that that made her name was kind of things she'd imagined that weren't necessarily possible it's a fascinating combination isn't it that 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 practical has to be you know needs to be built strain alongside this kind of utopian visionary artistic strain and it seems like a kind of constraint or a limitation but i can imagine it could be a really productive kind of you know kind of tension in the in the way in literature, you give yourself formal restrictions. So I'm going to write a sonnet. So I've only got 14 lines, and these have to verse. In the, and that looks like it's limiting your options. But in fact, it's kind of the opposite. I, think, I don't know if this is actually a famous architecture story or something I saw on a sitcom, but <laughs> about a, a library that What's was... What's the bit, difference? That, <laughs> I, I certainly don't know. That, uh, a library was built and apparently sank because they hadn't taken into account the weight of the books. <laughs> But I was thinking, I was thinking as well about terms which are actually sort of uh, similar, or that you know, or that literary terms that are derived from architectural terms, like a book has a plot. And lots of people recently have been interested in 
what they call paratext, like all the stuff that's around a book. So the prefaces and the introductions and the cover and the way you get ushered into a narrative or a poem. And, and it's always architectural metaphors that are used there. You've got thresholds, um, entrances, um, that kind of stuff. Man could build before he could write. Yeah. And the architecture was in some ways the, the precursor to writing. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, that meaning was transmitted and recorded through buildings. Yeah, yeah. You we know, started even, writing on, on yeah, our buildings, or, perhaps. Or the first things we wrote on were stone. Well, let's think about that. Let's think about graffiti, because that's another connection, connecting point, isn't it, in terms of literature and architecture. People actually writing on buildings. Which we'll be doing, to obviously, to advertise yeah. lit bits, that's, the that's thousand. I did, of... I did a bit outside before <laughs> I came in. I'm doing some now, actually. Um, graffiti has a kind of weird cultural status right now, doesn't it, because it's sort of transgressive, but it's also sort of rather like tattoos, not at all, and everyone, you know, has a go. And, and, and Banksy has made that, you know, shift from being edgy and outsidery to being on everyone's um, kind, of, kind of bookshelf. There's been some arguments recently about, about, about early, early modern Renaissance culture um, which, uh, as a culture which didn't have very much paper. Paper was very expensive, so people can spend the whole time walking around, writing on buildings, writing on furniture, etching into glass, and therefore we had to kind of rethink our preoccupation with the book as a form and start to think about all these other surfaces that people were writing on, um, which seems interesting, but a bit I saw some kids etching into a bus window the other day with a, with a compass, but I don't know what was going, going on. I wasn't going about to ask them. because Bits of North Anger, North Anger Abbey. I don't know. It's quite interesting because graffiti, it's often, it's often your tag name. So it's, it's, there's something a bit like signing a building as sort of somehow you're owning it. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess for a, for a, a, a disempowered teenager with a spray can, mm. the built environment is something that you know is nothing to do with them, and it's a way of appropriating it. Oh, and I suppose recently you know, it's the only way of asserting power in a kind of place where. And with the recent riots, the the the, the great enjoyment or se- seeming enjoyment of yeah. wanting to for, for me <laughs> of getting a free DVD, but of smashing buildings up, which seemed to be an enormous part of that. I don't know if that's if it was how much graffiti was done, but. Perhaps there wasn't much left by it's an, it's an interesting quality that buildings have is that they're, 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 they're very expensive and they're designed with great expertise, but they're also just there publicly available for people to kind of urinate against or write on or kind of charge against or smash up. And, well, is that the way they're different from, from literature and that, you know, you'll quite self-consciously go to your bookshelf and pick out uh, Northanger Abbey? But I must admit, until we were doing this, I, I w- wander around in a state of general sort of fogginess and I don't know how to read a building or why a building would be so I've got very used to seeing St Paul's and I, th- thinking about this um, did make me wonder I wonder what that building means totally um, and I, and, and and I realised I didn't know and, I, and, I, and talking to architects I realised they're often very good at looking and read, and they notice things that I never notice. And the thing they, the thing they always do that I never do is they look up. I never, I realise I never look up. Like they walk along and they look, they look around like this, and they see edges in the tops and the roofs. And I never, never notice any of that. And I suppose we just assume because because seeing comes naturally, we think it's it's not something that can be developed or learned, and so you don't kind of work on it as a as a sort of form or a mode like you would reading or something. But it's interesting from an architectural point of view that architects read a city or read a building in that sort of way, you know, that they are, they're constantly seeking to decode a facade that a facade, like we were saying before, a facade can communicate what's inside, but it can also send messages, it can quote from history it's always referring to something 
or you know a design color yeah, that, but that would seem to me to be rely on a quite developed kind of visual literacy like i wouldn't be confident that i could read a building see the quotations see the reference i might you know chimney and door i but, don't know but, i don't agree i think people's kind of uh vocabulary of architecture is more sophisticated than they think or that a lot of you know a lot of uh, architects have played on those kind of universal you know you see a square with a triangle on top and you read it as a a pitch roof and it's a house that's a house you know it's even that you know even at that simple level and that meaning can change i was just thinking about september the 11th where those buildings were chosen for because they signified particular things but within that whatever it was hour and a half the meaning of those buildings changed, or they changed instantly the moment the first plane and then the second plane hit them, and they became, they their significance changed in the way that perhaps certain events might change the way that we perceive a novel. Or, um, and I, I must admit, I, I've, I've I never saw them, but I gather there were these incredibly sort of overpowering, and Rand-esque sort of phallic symbols of wealth, power, and the American dream that became something quite different. And then I suppose they're going to be rebuilt, but I suppose. Are the original ones always going to be slightly there? Because when I went to Ground Zero, you're sort of you sort of see them in some slightly strange way, or you're very conscious of of the absence. And, and because of that kind of kind of symbolic um, kind of force that they carry, it's, it's hard to imagine them ever having any kind of practical function again. Like if you rebuild those buildings, it would be a bit hard to imagine sort of you know Starbucks and Microsoft going in floor by floor and. And working there, it would, it would, that, that kind of symbolism would kind of overwhelm. The, well, on some uh, level, I, I was watching a documentary which was about it was sort of recreating what was sort of going on inside the buildings after those planes hit, and you realised what sort of rather strange idea it was that if something like that did happen, which of course you couldn't possibly predict, it, if you happen to be above the line of those things, you you know you were stuffed. They seemed sort of gloriously impractical in that way. That, that's the thing. Yeah, September 11th. It's you know it seemed like. Impossible to imagine it happening, but also you, you kind of wonder why it didn't happen before in that kind of reason, in an awful way. And it was a mass mm-hmm. architectural event. It seemed that they, the, the things that were were targeted were, were were buildings. It's whether that sort of changes the architectural language, yeah. or whether you know that changes the perception of architecture yeah. in some way. I mean, it, it's changed the architectural language in that people make buildings more terrorist proof but yeah. um mm. but in terms of you know changing architecture is so slow to change is the other interesting thing really you can reinvent literature overnight you know you can write one book that could change literature but you know for architects you know a it'll take 30 40 years before you ever get to design anything that you can sort of consider your own and b it's always you know 20 30 years behind the zeitgeist generally mm. because of that partly but it's just a slow kind of art form in terms of responding to change, I, I would say. And is that partly to do with the fact that it's presumably a, generally a collaborative art form and there's the kind of teams working and you have these kind of um, personalities like, I don't know, Rem Coolhouse, which is the you know the greatest name. It's also a description of a building. It sounds like a description of a, a fridge or something, doesn't it? But he changed it through writing, right. first of all. You know, it's interesting that he started writing. Uh, he was a screenwriter, first of all, but then he wrote some fantastic, you know, books before he ever got to change architecture. Well, he, he was a was he success was he failed was he a sort of unsuccessful screenwriter or did he have a, did he make stuff? He was in a collective weirdly because there's an exhibition on him at the Barbican and they showed some of his films which I was dying to see. But he was in a collective, a Dutch collective. I can't remember the name of them. Uh, but one of the other people in the collective, there was only about five of them, was uh, Jan de Bont, who directed oh, Speed, yeah. <laughs> which uh, is quite a strange uh, 
association. Wow, I've got to get in a collective. That's, that's such a cool thing to do, awesome. doesn't it? Yeah. This is a beginning. Maybe we can think more about this this destruction thing. You talk about burning books and um, the, the, the 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 taboo of, of burning books or burning a Quran in Florida with Terry Jones and how that seems to be a, an assault on you know liberal values. And um, because I went last week to this exhibition um, in Islington about Joe Orton and Kenneth Halliwell's book defacements. And in 1962, they stole loads of library books from Islington um, Library and then did these hilarious collages on front and they made up these blurbs on the back. And so on Colin's Guide to Roses, there's this picture of a gibbon in the middle of it. And on John Betjeman's Collected Poetry, there's this naked man who's covered in tattoos and these incredibly um, bawdy fictional um, blurbs. I mean, among other things, it's many things, but it's definitely funny. And it was odd going around the exhibition because it was complete silence. And every now and again, there'd be sort of a hoot of laughter from someone, and then it would go back to being silent. And and the irony is that the the, the, the library that prosecuted them is now hosting the mm-hmm. you know this this wonderful exhibition. But it did. I mean, they got six months in prison for doing this. I mean, that seems extraordinary. I mean, and you know, partly that's a sort of homophobic judgment probably about that you know that and that's at least how Orton seemed to have seen it but it says also something about libraries being very important then in the way they're not now but um yeah I suppose I was thinking about the relative merits of smashing up a building and burning books buildings have a lifespan and buildings have a very temporary life whereas books you know if they you know if it's if it's a resilient idea, it'll last forever if people want it to. Yeah. Although an architect once, Shigeru Ban, Japanese architect, who once said to me, the lifespan of a building doesn't depend on how well it's built, it depends on how much people love it, mm. which is kind of similar to literature, really. Yeah. That if you love a building, it will last forever because people will restore it and will make sure it never dies, no matter how badly it's made. There's this extraordinary argument going on at the moment, I think, is it in Preston about the... The bus shelter. The brutalist Mm. bus shelter. And apparently this has been voted Preston's favourite building 300 times in a row. But the the council want to, if I'm right, knock it down because it's it's not seen as being useful. It's massive and unwieldy, but it's, if you like, brutalist architecture. Apparently, you know, you should be there. Um, and this councillor I heard on the radio the other morning was was suggesting that the man in the street would hate it because they couldn't possibly enjoy something that was seen as oblique and odd and and perhaps a bit uncomfortable. Whereas I think he just wants to turn it into a massive ASDA or something. But the man in the street clearly does like it in Preston because it, they voted it the favourite. So I suppose our buildings can be argued over in the same way that we would argue over it. Yeah, but then imagine you went into a library and said, "said you know, should we burn this book? Should we destroy this book forever?" And everyone went, mm, "Yeah, yes or no," kind of thing. Whereas architects have to fight for, you know, conservation. You know, is quite a strange issue. In well, I suppose it's the, it's it's, the, the, it's gone. It's gone forever. With the ode on a Grecian urn, that you have you have a poem which will exist in a book that will last and last because the poem exists separately from the mm. the mode of his existence, as uh, my mother said to me earlier. <laughs> Whereas the the actual Grecian urn itself is one of a kind, and if you break it, it's gone, mm. and there is no even in a poem it, it can't be recreated. But when architects design buildings, I mean, is, do the buildings have a lifespan? I mean, any kind of building, like a barrett home Absolutely. or a house. I mean, is, is it like thirty years or five years? Or I mean, or obviously it depends on the kind of building. But they have they. It's imagined that they will fall down and crumble and decay and die at some point. Yeah, and I don't think you know they're not expected. Or you know, if it's a really prestigious building, it would be you know a hundred years or something. But yeah. most architects wow. aren't designing for anything like that lifespan. 
whatever. And right? I'm not sure. I think there are legal kind of parameters over, you know, the expected lifespan. More of than an hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sometimes buildings just sort of, they sort of suck. I've got a friend who... <laughs> who's, never, who's, never. But he's going, well, he's going around and what she's doing is because there's so much knocking down of buildings around London. She's taking photographs through where these knockdown buildings are and there were lots of them around Piccadilly. And there's a lovely church, that's the um, St. James's Church, I think, um, just on German Street. And the building next to it got knocked down, and there was suddenly sunlight coming through the stained glass window, which has now gone because they've got a building with a Costa Coffee, which obviously is very important. Um, <laughs> but for those few months, because of the absence of a building, you saw something quite different and had a different experience of another building. And so when this other building went up with a Costa Coffee, and I think the Lewin's shirts, something's slightly gone, yeah. you know, but... You yeah. know, my shirts are much, much better and, and, and more caffeinated. And so our buildings are not little islands on their own, are they? I mean, they're always, yeah, they're always in dialogue and, and keep and you can see getting their meaning and from there's a, And there's a finite kind of space for them. Yeah. You can carry on adding to the volume of literature, but, you know, in a city especially, you can build new towns, I suppose, but, you know, in a city, most historic cities, you can only build a new building if you get rid of an old building. So yeah. it's a kind of process of renewal I suppose. These football teams are sort of endlessly moaning about the fact they can't expand their ground because Upton Park is rammed in on on all sides but there's something quite sort of nice about that I suppose that build it, some buildings are yeah circumscribed and that they're in they have to be in dialogue with other other buildings you know you're a city you're not designing in isolation you can you can write a book not you know if you reject the entire tradition of literature mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. a bonus yeah. <laughs> you're on something new yeah 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 um, except if you live in Houston, I briefly, briefly lived in Houston, and um, there are no there are these kind of libertarian planning laws in the sense there are no planning laws. So you, there's no zoning laws, so you can build anything anywhere. Um, whereas most American cities have, you know, areas that are residential, areas that are shops. So you've got this crazy juxtaposition of, of a kind of a museum with a sort of crummy B and B, and then a massive tower block, and then a cricket pavilion, or or it's a American equivalent. So uh, which was and it was very odd. It was very odd. Yeah. Oh, it's weird. So, yeah, I mean, the only places I can think of where they have a blank canvas on which to add stuff were places like Dubai, which yeah. I went to, mm. where you know you can see the sort of the ground, the terrain mapped out into squares, where you know most of it's blank, and it's just like build what you want here. Can we um, talk about Andrew Motion? <laughs> uh, You've got something to get off your chest. Seems to be uh, a refrain. In this um, in this series of pods, but um, Andrew Motion uh, had uh, when he was still the illustrious poet laureate um, had a poem, didn't he? Written on or it was a commission. He had to write a poem, and it was projected on the Sheff- Sheffield Hallam University of Tower Block, I believe, in two thousand and seven, and um, in huge letters. And um, why don't I read the poem? It's very short, and um, once we've recovered. Um, Maybe because there's something about what happens to a poem when it's written on a big wall and it, with with huge letters and and how is it and I've got it before me in, in, in you know size eleven Garamond font a very very small intimate thing what's the difference when it becomes this massive imposing thing so this is it's called what if and then three dots question mark by Andrew Motion oh travellers from somewhere else to here rising I start again James laughed oh travellers from somewhere else to here rising from Sheffield Station and Sheaf Square to wander through the labyrinths of air pause now and let the sight of this sheer cliff become a priming place which lifts you off to speculate what if what if what if 
Cloud shadows drag their hands across the white. Rain prints the sudden darkness in its, of its weight. Sun falls and leaves the bleaching evidence of light. Your thoughts are like this too, as fixed as words set down to decorate a blank facade. And yet, as words are too, all soon transferred to greet and understand what lies ahead. The city where your dreamling is repaid. It says dreamling, but that surely must be dreaming. The city where your dreaming is repaid. The lives which wait unseen as yet unread. It'd be awful actually if dreamling is up on the building and it's a misprint. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do? Awful, sort of but also good. Fill it in. Well, maybe that's the first point. Yeah, there's no, if you put it on a huge building, there's, um, the errors are more exposed. But it doesn't say much about, in the way that something like, um, I'm just trying to think of, I mean, this isn't a building, but you have John Keats's epitaph, Here Lies One Whose Name Is Written Water, which is quite important because it's written on a bit of stone and so all sorts of slightly odd ironies being played. Whereas that's got nothing very much to do with the fact it's on a building. It's just I don't know, there's something grandiose about it, though, isn't there? So. The, you know, the elements, the sun, the clouds, it's kind of like... You I can suppose see it's up in the air. This is massive. This yeah. is massively important because it's big. Yeah, basically. yeah. And it, yeah, absolutely it's important. It sort of becomes more of an injunction, doesn't it? When you see it, I imagine. Um, I haven't made the pilgrimage yet to Sheffield, but when you see it on the walls, it sounds almost like a command. And it does sound a bit like a command, doesn't it? Which is odd if it's called "What If." It seems to be slightly at odds with getting your imagination. But I suppose it's motion-esque, isn't it? It's, he wants your imagination to operate, but only as he sees. Fear. Well, that's exactly that's always the paradox with him, isn't it? It's the injunction to sort of be free. But I'm sort of surprised that this doesn't happen more often because I think it's rather. I mean, I like poems on the underground. Oh, I can imagine architects would hate the idea. Really? <laughs> Why? Yeah. Why? Because it would because dominate it, the meaning of the. Yeah, building. because you don't design a building to be a billboard. You know, it's not it's not a gigantic page for someone else's writing. Yeah. It's you know, it's like I was saying, it's legible for what it is. It's you don't need to write on it to tell you what it is. That's yeah. just imposing a different language. But and that all must be always an issue with architectural criticism in that when we talk about buildings, when we talk about literature, we're dealing with words and we're using words to, to talk about words. I mean, so we're sort of in the same pool of, you know, the same kind of conversational pool. But with architecture isn't about words as you say it's about bricks and buildings but all we have to talk about them really is words so there's always a sort of act of translation isn't there or conversion the medium in which to criticize architecture most kind of accurately is probably cinema or something really mm. because literature is so dependent on you evoking images in your head and architecture is is the, the images are right there there's no ambiguity about the images that's mm -hmm. the bit that's literal mm -hmm. And so, yeah, in, in that way, writing about architecture, which is which is what's great about, you know, that you can exploit in literature, that you can describe a building in the most sort of perfunctory way, and people will fill in, you know, the images in your head, which is what one of the things I was... Um, uh, Invisible Cities, the Italo yeah. Calvino, um, which is one of my favourite books about architecture because it's a series of descriptions of imaginary cities that the framing is... Uh, Marco Polo talking to Kubla Khan describing cities he has seen uh, on his travels whereas you know the gimmick of the book is in effect he's actually just describing Venice several <laughs> times over uh, but he describes it in a different way each time and they're very short passages but they evoke fantastical cities um, using words mm. but you're not you're not really you know you're not describing a lot about the city but the rest mm. of it is done by the reader can we talk about uh, writers' rooms? Because there was a series, wasn't there, in The Guardian, G2. Was it G2? Or the, re the review, I think. And it was I found it riveting. 
and sort of uh, each week there was a, a, a photo of the sort of studio or the writing space in which um, some successful writer worked and a picture of the desk and this sort of pile of books um, and a description, a sort of decoding of it on the right. And the, the description by the writer was always the kind of sort of boring, I always thought, and sort of flat. And you didn't want that. You just wanted the image, I think, of the kind of pile of books and stuff. Mm. And it was weird. I don't, I don't quite know why I found it so compelling. I, th- I mean, had it just been a photo of a of a room without any of that association with literature, I don't know that I would have found it so interesting. But there was something about the space of creativity with the author removed. And I suppose this feeling that I had, this assumption that I had that the creativity was conditioned by that space and what happened in the books was to some degree because of the arrangement of the walls and the pictures and the glass. And, and There's and a wonderful so picture of this house that Samuel Beckett bought after he earned a bit of cash. And it's just what you'd imagine Beckett's writing room would look like. There's a desk and a pencil and a lamp and I think three books and that's it. And One then, enormous dictionary. And I think funny for that article I... I went to this room, Craig Rain's room, which is just covered in books. But the most extraordinary thing is you talk to Craig Rain sitting in a chair with a picture of Craig Rain sitting in the same chair over it, and you sort of have to guess which one's more realistic. That sounds like <laughs> Airplane. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but there's this kind of chaos of... I suppose it's what we want a writer's place to be like. It's why we love going to writers or, or, or dislike going to writers' houses. The writers' houses are quite odd in that way because you know there are, there are about I think at least ninety-seven different Dickens houses, and there's the one where Dickens stopped to do his shoelace, and that's now a Dickens museum with shoelaces. And but there are a few where Dickens actually hung around. Um, you know, I, and I should put a plug in for the the Keats House in Rome, which which I'm involved with in some way. But Keats Keats died there, but spent very little time there. And the only one I've been to where I felt there was there was a real sort of uh, synthesis of writer and, and house was I went to Emily Dickinson's house who famously sort of never really moved from mm. from 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 that, th- these walls and you you wanted some clue about where this is what she saw physically every day um, how did this connect with these these quite strange poems and it didn't really it's, it's funny kind of the status of literary tourism of that kind isn't it because it's very frowned upon within you know academic circles isn't it and seen as for those reasons seen as kind of romantic and you know mm. This is the air that the bard, you know, took in, and um, but it is. I, I still find it kind of compelling. It can be illuminating. I went to William Faulkner's house in oh, Mississippi, um, and um, you know, it's one of those as you'd hope and imagine. It's sort of you know, some that? grand crumbling Fortune. sort of antebellum sort of you know, and um, but the most illuminating bit was the the telephone was just on a kind of like a tiny triangular shelf in a corner of the room. And it was surrounded by just scribblings on the walls in pencil, which just like he'd written kind of telephone numbers and wow. details and stuff. You know, you could just you could just picture him on the wall scribbling random. Two margarita pizzas, <laughs> yeah. chicken wings, <laughs> Domino's <laughs> number. Hold the curry sauce. <laughs> <laughs> but it is odd, and I think something. But I think something does happen when you walk around those places. There is something about um, being able to imagine. Where you're standing, they perhaps walk past, probably doing something unbelievably mundane. The few moments when I've been into an architectural office, um, they're very compelling, to use James' favourite word, compelling spaces, but they're also, they're just so different from kind of literary creativity and that like, there's music playing and people are kind of wandering around, like there's a lot of iPods and uh, lots of people and 
it's not. It didn't seem to be at all that. Lots of models and kind of conversation. It didn't didn't at all be. Wasn't at all that that kind of romantic kind of solitary focus. It was, well, I think I think I mean this is um, architects have a different image, but they still have a kind of stereotypical image. I think mm-hmm. um, you know with writers it's the kind of you know fevered, furrow-browed sort of you know intellectual sort of you know yeah. I must give me. But architects as well, I think have have this image of. I mean, architects figure in movies a lot, for example. Mm. They're always, you know, if you make someone an architect, it means they're sort of responsible, family guy, professional, intelligent, but creative as well. Yeah, you know, right. caring a bit, in touch with their emotional side. Often Woody Allen movies, I think. That's yeah. Well, I was, um, I was just thinking about, because we were talking about architect, the image of architects in films and thinking about how many times architects are depicted in films. And I just quick, had a quick search and I, I got a quick list and they're more than you think. Um, for example, I'll just read a few out. Wesley Snipes in Jungle Fever, Henry Fond in Twelve Henry Fonda in Twelve Angry Men, Keanu Reeves in The Lake House, Mark Ruffalo in Just Like Heaven, Adam Sandler in Click, Richard Gere in Intersection, Woody Harrelson in Indecent Proposal, mm. Liam Neeson in Love Actually, Luke Wilson in My Super <laughs> Ex Girlfriend, Michelle Pfeiffer in One Fine Day, Matt Dillon in There's Something About Mary, Matt Dillon in You Me and Dupre, Tom Hanks in Sleepless in Seattle. Etc. Etc. But, but the, the responsibility and is, is, is all that. Brad Pitt um, is constantly to sort of um, affecting an interest. No, no, he seems to generally have an interest in architecture, doesn't he? He talks about architecture. It's real. A lot. I've interviewed Brad Pitt actually. Of course, you and, have. Um, yeah. And he did. He was he was asking me about architecture. Not that I'm blowing my trumpet or anything here, but um, he um, and he ha- he does have a genuine interest in it. Yeah. He's building rebuilding houses in New Orleans that were right. sort of. Uh, destroyed by Hurricane Katrina. And then Prince Charles, of course, who's who's a great architectural critic of the day. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. But my favourite, I remember always in Seinfeld, um, George Costanza, um, the sort of abject character, um, um, is delighted to admit that he pretends to be interested in architecture <laughs> in order to impress in, in order to impress women. And, that, that, and, then, and it was funny because it did seem to capture something about architecture as that's more than that just responsible persona there's something kind of a bit edgy and um creative and uh, perhaps difficult to convey in words the kind of ineffable nature of what what they do maybe but but innately good one thing i want to ask was was about was about libraries it just seemed to be again a place where books and and architecture in a fairly obvious way i like Hmm. to ask the obvious um are there particularly sort of one wonderful well we're both fans of the london library yeah. which is this um, St. James's Square, 19th century, open stack, gentleman's club meets library. That you can importantly take the, the books away from, yeah. which is alarming sometimes when you realise you've got these 12 Dickens first editions which are worth more than yeah. the house if you if you, if you you get burgled. And, and I've ha- I have had them for sort of seven years yes. until they write this people die. impeccably polite. Yeah, people die and they find London Library books which were taken out in 1932. <laughs> it seems to be a place that is probably by accident designed that you get lost in. So it's quite hard to get work done sometimes because you're wandering to get a book and then you get your eyes is caught by S. Dot Sachs. Yeah, S. It's, dot it, sewage, it's kind are. of the opposite of the sort of super efficient, pragmatic database well, search. Well, that's why I want to ask about the British Library because I, I find it quite hard to go there, partly because it's so jam-packed with fourteen-year-olds, with fourteen-year-olds, sort of um, oh, often on the fuss. Yes, on yeah. these plug-in, but <clears throat> that does seem to be a new kind of library, a slightly sort of I mean, on a dark day, also Orwellian 
sort of battery farm for academics yeah. producing footnotes. Mm. Although it's weird that the introduction of broadband has completely changed the library, hasn't it, really? But it's, it's nothing, nothing to do with the architecture. Or, yeah. you know, when Colin St. John Wilson was designing it, he had no idea if broadband was coming along to kind of fill the building with students on their laptops getting free wireless, yeah. uh, which is slightly sort of... Yeah. So it's become this, what, general space? You just go and take your laptop and plug in and, and do your... Yeah, which is something that architects can't do anything about. It's an extraordinary thing walking around London at the moment is, is you're so aware of how much building work is being done. And I was... Was on the was on the South Bank. I was somewhere recently, and I was looking across, and it, the sun was going down. And the thing I became incredibly aware of was how many cranes, and for in that slightly sort of, I think I'd had a couple of drinks, quite possibly. And in a sort of some moment, you you thought you were in a in a in a dinosaur movie that these things were about to kind of wander across. And you, I just thought there is so much. London is being rebuilt and refashioned, yeah. and it's a bit like I suppose. I suppose the nearest would be going to a library and seeing a, a manuscript of a, of a, of a, of a novel and, and trying to retrace some of the steps of the way that the that, that, that work of art and to, to see so much building actually happening in front of you. It's funny isn't it because that is the, and, and you sort of you don't notice it until you notice it and then you really notice it like sort of seeing deer in the, in the, the extraordinary in the way that people still have to wolf whistle and shower with the Builders and show you their ass. I mean, it's just all the cliches. <laughs> authors do that all the time. And authors yeah. do that. Yes. I mean, Andrew back, Motion. Back is Motion. But it's funny architecture then, because architecture is architecture. Seem you know we think of it as being synonymous with kind of fixity and permanence and stability, and that's and, it, and as a metaphor for literature, it's often used in that way. But it's walking around London. It's 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 half built or it's point one built or it's mm. it's just in the very beginning stages of it. I mean, it's only a it's a sort of 16th century city, really, isn't it? So it's quite recent that, it, that, it's, that it's come around. Well, maybe just to, to round things up, we can, we can think about our favourite building or a building we like or a building that we... Uh... I'm always really baffled, actually, because we live in a, in a building which is, is, is listed in some fashion and on open house weekend, people come and visit it and take photographs. While you're in the bath. And it's peculiar because we live there, and it's pretty. I mean, it's very, it's a very extraordinary place. I think. It's, what it's, building is it? It's Pullman Court in Streatham, which is a, a gibbered designed, okay. and it's it's fairly extraordinary. But when you live in a place, you just think, oh God, the shower stopped working, and the neighbours are noisy, and you know the people parked under your flat. And for you this one day of the year, the you suddenly look at this place completely differently. Well, my I mean, my off my office at work is very very tiny. Um, really really tiny but it has a quite a nice view but 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 the reason i like it was that it is um used to be john maynard Keynes's bathroom <laughs> um or at least part of his bathroom his sort of shower gel cabinet i think in fact you can see all these links africa's from 1920 <laughs> stored up in a shelf but um uh and obviously it's wrong to think the kind of the spirit of the former owners lived on but i do like there is something there's a certain free song i think as i'm sitting there typing or talking to a student or something that 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 you know this is where Keynes um thought about economics as he was having his shower well, it was interesting in both cases they're sort of architecture as repositive repositories of memory mm. and that literature and architecture are poss possibly the two art forms that preserve memory cultural memory better well, than any other okay so i think we should probably draw to a close and, and go off and, and, and do some graffiti. Um, thanks very much to Steve Rose and... I'm going to go and deface it. 
I'll see you in uh, six months prison. Um, thanks very much to Steve Rose and, as ever, to James Kidd. And we will be returning soon with a new warm, plump pod. So keep listening. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.